Well, good morning. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us this morning. If you have a Bible and you want to turn, we will be in Romans 7, as, uh, as Mike just read, verses 1 through 6. Uh, as uh, you are turning there, just want to uh, kind of mention something that maybe you have experienced in your life. I don't know if you are married, if you've ever had the conversation with your spouse about what you would do if your spouse were to pass away. In particular, have you ever had the conversation where you ask, would you get remarried? And then gone on and had the conversation, well, how long would you wait until you get remarried? If you've not had that conversation, I would not recommend it. I don't, say, I don't think it can go well uh, unless you just quote like Romeo and Juliet or something, but it doesn't go well for Romeo and Juliet. So there's really no way to win that particular conversation. I think the only thing that you can do is if your spouse uh, asks you that question is ignore them. Or if that doesn't work, maybe you just talk about how somehow you magically plan that, uh, you know, you're going to be married for 60 or 70 years, and then you're going to die within an hour of each other, like in the notebook or something, super romantic. Um, but uh, I was once having this theoretical conversation uh, with a group of pastors, and we were trying to kind of figure out, in general, what is uh, kind of a wise amount of time to wait before, uh, before you get remarried if your spouse dies? And so not looking for a hard and fast rule. The Bible certainly doesn't explicitly say that you have to wait a certain period of time. It might be super sketchy, super suspicious, super shady if someone were to get remarried within like a week of their spouse dying. But you couldn't definitively say that it's sin because the Bible doesn't definitively say uh, that it's sin. So that's not what we're trying to do. We're not trying to create this sort of a law. We're not trying to create a rule. We're just trying to think of what would be generally wise in order to kind of mourn and grieve and work through emotional wounds and all of those kinds of things. And so this group of pastors were having this conversation, and, uh, and one person threw out just this kind of formula that was, I think you should wait one month per year of marriage, which kind of sounded good, especially if you've been married for like 10 years or 20 years, you have an appropriate sort of mourning period. But it sounds like it's not long enough if you've been married a year, like you just wait a month and that's it. Or if you've been married for like uh, 50 years, now you have to wait another five more years after your spouse has died in order to get remarried. And so we kind of thought that math sounds off a little bit. So I opted for a flat rate. I kind of said, I think you just maybe a year. A year is kind of it. You don't have to figure out this formula. And, uh, and so that was what I said. And then a buddy of mine, uh, just, just seriously, he looked at us. He said, you know what, guys? I don't think I could ever remarry. I'll never find someone that I love as much as my wife and does so much for me. We just stared at him and shook our heads. Like, that's not the conversation. We're not talking about your particular. We're trying to get this sort of pastoral uh, wisdom, but this is what he did. And so later on that evening, as I'm decompressing this conversation with my wife, Casey, uh, I apparently uh, did not communicate it all that well. And, uh, and so we're talking about this conversation, and rather than hearing me say... That, uh, uh, that this is kind of a, a general wisdom in a hypothetical situation for this hypothetical person that you should wait a bare minimum of one year. Uh, Casey heard me somehow say that my buddy loves his wife so much that he's never going to remarry, but I'm going to definitely get married within a year. <laughs> That's not what I said. That is not how I intended that conversation to go, but that is how it, uh, it went. The reason that I share that is because our passage this morning really is going to uh, kind of leverage this imagery 
of, uh, of death and remarriage. And that is going to be kind of the platform, the illustration that Paul is going to use to make this theological point about how it is that you and I are to pursue sanctification, which is kind of the point of chapter 6, 7, and 8 uh, in Romans, how we are to pursue sanctification in light of our justification, chapters 4 and, uh, and 5. And so in chapter 5, we saw this idea that Paul brings out that, where, uh, that grace abounds where sin increases. And so then that then brings up the question, if you're telling me that the more that I sin, the more that God's grace abounds, why not sin all the more so that grace may abound? That's what chapter 6 is written to, uh, to address. It's to answer this question, why you and I should not sin all the more so that grace may abound. And chapter 7 is really going to be an extension of this idea, an extension of, his, of Paul's answer to the question, why not sin all the more so that grace may abound, by focusing in, in, in particular on the specific question of the Mosaic law. And he's going to say, we don't sin all the more so that grace may abound, but neither do we submit ourselves to the authority and the jurisdiction of the Mosaic law. We have a new master, a new spouse, to use the imagery of chapter 7, and thus we serve a new law from a new heart, thus bearing good fruit. That's our passage this morning. So let's pray together, and then we will uh, dive into the passage and see what it says. First, I want to ask you just to pray for yourself, that the Lord would give you eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that is not divided or distracted this morning. And then would you pray that for those around you? those sitting next to you, in front of you, behind you, across the aisle from you, that the Lord would give us as a spiritual family eyes to see and ears to hear. And then lastly, would you pray for me, that I would be faithful to God's Word, that we would be edified and encouraged together. So Father, we ask that you would do what you do, which is to, uh, to bless your Word, that your Holy Spirit would come and minister to us and uh, enlighten us as He has inspired this, uh, this uh, Word that, uh, that He might now illuminate it to our hearts and, uh, and help us to see more clearly uh, the grace and mercy that we have in Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Uh, we'll begin in Romans 7.1 where Paul writes, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. We're just going to tackle that first verse uh, first. And the, verse, uh, the, the logic of the verse is pretty straightforward. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. But in order for us to understand why it is that Paul brings this up, there's two questions that we need to answer. The first question is, what is this law that he's talking about? And then we need to answer the question, why does he bring up the law? Why is that kind of a natural progression out of uh, chapter 6, uh, sinning all the more so that grace may abound? So what law and why does he bring up the law? And so first we'll tackle what law is he talking about? So I want to go back, if you will, in the context, Romans 5, verses 12 through 14, which is where we encounter this reference to the law for the first time in this context. Paul writes, therefore, just as sin entered or came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, 
who was a type of the one who was to come. So for a, a full exposition or exegesis of that passage, go back and listen to that particular sermon. But for now, just note here in this text the connection between Moses and the law. The law that he's talking about here isn't eternal. It has a beginning. It appears in redemptive history. It appears in redemptive history in connection with this man, Moses. So when Paul is talking about the law here in chapter 7, he's not talking about laws or commands in general. Instead, he is talking explicitly about the law of Moses, what we would call the Mosaic law. The 613 commands that are given to Israel in the wilderness by God, kind of uh, administered to them through, uh, through Moses. And, uh, and so, again, he's not talking about laws and commands in general. He's talking in particular about the Mosaic law. So as we are working through Romans 7, and you see references to the law, don't think a law in general. Don't think about just random laws. Think about the Mosaic law in particular that we see inscribed in Exodus through Deuteronomy, what we would call the Old Testament, what Paul would just simply call uh, the Bible uh, in his day. And so that's the law that we're talking about. But why does Paul bring up the Mosaic law? That's the next question that we need to answer. So we need to go back again for context. Romans 5, 20 through 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So even though chapter 7 is a new chapter in our English Bibles, it's really a continuation and extension of some of the arguments that he has made in Romans 5 and 6. This all flows together. He's not digressing here. He's not giving some sort of parentheses here. He's actually continuing on with his uh, train of thought. And notice in Romans 5, 20 through 21 that we just read, notice the triumvirate of bondage that he's mentioned there. He's talked about bondage to sin. He's talked about bondage to death. And he's talked about bondage to the law. That's one of the things that we often will kind of uh, overlook there. But there's this triumvirate, this trilogy, uh, if you will, of, uh, of the terrors of bondage. That is sin, death, and the law. Together, they form the chains of our spiritual enslavement. That you and I, as a result of being in Adam, which is the theme of chapter 5 of Romans, as a result of being in Adam, we are spiritually enslaved. And these are the cords that, are, uh, that kind of make up our bondage. There are these three interwoven uh, cords that together make up the ropes that, uh, that enslave uh, humanity. That's what he's talking about here. And so, having cut away the cords of sin and death, which is what he does in, uh, in chapter 6, he now turns his attention to kind of the last remaining uh, cord the last remaining chain, the last remaining form of bondage for us and has to deal with the, uh, the Mosaic law. As long as you're still bound to the law, in Paul's mind, you're still bound to sin and to death as well uh, because they are so tightly wound together. Now, this is a really profound claim on, uh, on Paul's part. If you are a first century Jew, you think of the law as a uh, kind of uh, as a means of curbing sin, you think that it's uh, it's God's appointed means to actually uh, stop or to curb sin. But what Paul says is that it actually exacerbates sin. 
rather than slowing sin down, it actually uh, is going to speed it up. That the Mosaic law is not actually a, a brake pedal, it's actually the gas pedal. It's an accelerator. It actually increases, it speeds up, it exacerbates uh, sin. As we'll see here in a little bit, it arouses sin, which means that in order for you and I to be free from sin, in some sense, we have to be free from the Mosaic law. Now, he doesn't say here, and he doesn't mean here, that the law is therefore uh, completely worthless to us. It's absolutely, there are benefits of the law. Uh, over the next couple of weeks, we'll get into some of those. There are certain benefits of the law, but in terms of its jurisdiction, in terms of its authority, we are no longer under the jurisdiction or authority of the Mosaic law. And, uh, and so we'll get, uh, uh, in just a moment, we'll get to the idea that we're still under law in general. We're still bound to, uh, to serve. We're still bound uh, to pursue sanctification and holiness and morality and ethics and all of these uh, sorts of things. But we're no longer under the authority or jurisdiction of the Mosaic law, which is what Paul had explicitly said in, uh, in chapter 6. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. That's Romans 6.14. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. To no longer be under the law means to be free or released from the law, to be no longer under its jurisdiction and authority. So what chapter 7 is doing is it's taking some of these points that Paul has brought up in chapter 5 and chapter 6, some of these things that he's implied in these chapters, and then he's going to make them more uh, explicit and expound upon them in, uh, in chapter 7. Having been justified, which is the concern of chapters 4 and 5, how then shall we be sanctified? That's the concern of chapters 6 and 7. So I want you to imagine that you have some sort of a favorite uh, shirt, a favorite blouse, a favorite uh, uh, sweater, a favorite pair of pants, whatever it is, a, a favorite garment, a favorite article of, uh, of clothing, and that uh, article of clothing somehow becomes stained. And that stain is so set in that you can't just shout it out. You can't just, no matter how much OxyClean or Clorox or whatever it is that you try to throw at it, it won't actually get the stain out. That's kind of the imagery that we get here of the relationship between sin and the Mosaic Law. That the Mosaic Law has been so stained by sin that you have to be free. In order to be free from the sin, you have to be actually free from the garment in, uh, in some sense. And so if we've died to sin, which is what chapter 6 says, then we have also died to the law. And for an illustration of this, Paul's going to use the analogy of marriage. So let's look in verses 2 through 3. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So before we begin to work through this passage and what it is saying, we need to deal with what it's not saying. This is not Paul's attempt at giving a fully-fledged, uh, sort of fully-fleshed-out understanding of, uh, of marriage. And uh, so we don't look at this passage and, and try to uh, kind of expound upon it and, and try to pull from it all of the different uh, potential questions that we might have about what about divorce and what about remarriage and all that kind of stuff. I think that's actually one of the reasons that, uh, that Paul uses the example of a woman. He doesn't use the example of just a person in general. 
He uses the, the example of a woman in particular because a first century Jewish woman in general didn't have the right to divorce. So he doesn't have to deal with those sorts of exceptions. If you're a first century Jewish woman, the only way that you got out of the marriage is if your spouse divorced you or your spouse died. And sin never divorces us. So the only thing that can happen in order to sever that relationship is death. And so that's the illustration he uses here. If you want more on kind of uh, what we believe about marriage, what we believe about divorce and remarriage, let me encourage you to go back, listen to our sermon on Mark 10 that we did a couple of years ago. Listen to our sermon on Ephesians 5 that we did last year. Go back and listen to Theological Equipping that we did last year on marriage and divorce and remarriage. Or check out our blog. We just posted three super spicy, controversial blogs on uh, divorce and, uh, and remarriage and what the Bible might say about those in controversial context. But again, that's not the point of, uh, of this text. This text is intended as an analogy. It's an illustration of Paul's point about how death relates to the law. That's what we saw in uh, verse 1, that death is going to sever a relationship. Uh, and, uh, and so he uses an example of marriage as that. And the illustration should be really simple enough. If, uh, if you go out to dinner sometime and, uh, and you, let's say you go to the, uh, the town square and, uh, and as you are coming out of the restaurant, you see my wife Casey and she's walking hand in hand with another man, it makes every difference in the world whether or not I'm still alive at this period of time. If I have died, she is free to remarry. Whereas if I'm still living, she is uh, still uh, in relationship with me. So if death, that's the point here, if death severs a marital relationship, then our death in Christ severs any sort of marital obligation that you and I might have to the Mosaic law. There are some things that endure after death. We probably wish it didn't, but debt often is going to endure after death. Your estate is going to have to pay out uh, certain uh, debts, but something that does not endure after death is this marital sort of uh, obligation. That's why traditional marriage vows would say, until death do us part, the implication being that in death we do part. There is a severing of that uh, relationship. You might remember the story from the Gospels of the uh, Sadducees, and they attempt, to, uh, uh, they attempt to trick Jesus by bringing up this uh, question because the Sadducees uh, doubt the resurrection. And so they, they come to Jesus, and, and they try to trick him. They try to trap him with this illustration, and they say uh, that there is a, a woman, and she is married uh, to someone, and that man dies. And so then she has to marry his brother. And then he dies, and she has to marry another brother, and, uh, and he dies, and on and on and on until it gets to the seventh brother. If I'm that seventh brother, I am super scared, right? This is a femme fatale, sort of a black widow sort of person, uh, but uh, he does his uh, mosaic law obligation. He marries her, and he dies as well. And the Sadducee says, well, then whose uh, spouse is she going to be in the resurrection? And Jesus says, you've misunderstood marriage. That marriage is not intended to be this eternally lasting thing. It's a temporal picture of the eternal love that Jesus Christ has for the church. The eternal love that God has for His people. Marriage in and of itself, human marriage, is just a portrait of spiritual marriage. And at some point, it becomes unnecessary. Once we have uh, had our relationship with Jesus Christ consummated, that's the language that's used of this, this sort of marriage uh, supper, the marriage uh, feast uh, that we're going to experience that's talked about in Revelation. Once that day comes, 
then no longer do we need the metaphor, no longer do we need the picture, no longer do we need the analogy or the, uh, the illustration. That's the point that he is uh, making here. And so let's see how he connects that in verse 4. Romans 7, 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So now we get the analogy applied to us. Paul's saying that we have died to the law. That's what Paul meant in 6.14 when he said that we're no longer under the law because Christ has fulfilled the law and he's died for sin to conquer death. We have therefore died to sin, to death, and also to the uh, Mosaic law. But we haven't merely died. Notice that in this passage. It says that we've also been remarried. That's part of the illustration that he used uh, before. Not just that death severs a relationship, but it also uh, enacts this, this uh, ability for us to get remarried. And, uh, and so not only have we died, but we've also been remarried. We're no longer bound to or by the Mosaic law because we're bound to Christ. We're married to Christ. That's the illustration that he's using here. And so before we move on to the reason that we're bound to Christ, which is really the point of this particular verse, I just really want to briefly mention an implication that we see here. Notice that he says that uh, we've died to the law through the body of Christ. Notice that it says that, he, that we've died to the law through the body of Christ, not through the good teaching of Christ. As extraordinary as the teaching of Christ is, that's not the way that we've died to sin. Notice it also doesn't say that we have died to sin or died to the law through the uh, sort of moral example of Christ. As exemplary as Jesus' character is, no one has ever been like him. He was tempted in every way and yet never uh, fell into that temptation, never sinned. And so he is of the utmost character. And yet that's not the way that we died to sin. It says that we died to sin through the body of Christ, through his sacrifice, through his crucifixion and his resurrection. So we talk all the time here at Parkway about this doctrine that we call the, uh, the doctrine of the union uh, with Christ, that you and I are united to Christ. And we talk about how that's the fountainhead from which every blessing is going to flow to us as believers. Any good that you have from God flows to you through Jesus Christ, through your union with Christ. He is the heir and we are co-heirs. But notice that what in particular we are united to is Christ's death and resurrection. We're united to Christ's death, and therefore we die. We die to sin. We die to the law. We're denied, uh, we are united to Christ's resurrection, and so therefore we are united uh, to, we experience regeneration, that is being born again. And one day, this will purchase for us our own uh, resurrection as well. So we've died to the law through the body, that is through the death and resurrection of Christ, and having been united or bound to Christ, we now belong to Him in order that we may bear fruit for God. That's the point of this particular uh, verse, in order to show sort of the result, the purpose, the intent uh, of our death and our subsequent remarriage to Christ. So bear in mind, there's this fruit imagery that He's carrying over from chapter 6. Uh, if you've been with us, you've noticed that. Romans 6, 21 through 22 Paul had said, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed for the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. 
So last week we saw that sin offers fruit. Sin offers fruit, but it's forbidden fruit. It's a poisoned apple. It's grapes of wrath. It's the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil leading only to death. And because sin has been interwoven with the law, the law therefore is going to bear the same type of fruit. The law is only going to bear the fruit of shame and condemnation and death, which were the fruits of sin that we saw last week. So you might think of the law kind of like a greenhouse. And the greenhouse is intended to be this place where within the confines of it, fruit and harvest should be plentiful. But imagine that that greenhouse has been filled with some sort of poisonous gas so that it chokes out any opportunity for vegetation. That's what sin has done to the law. The law is this greenhouse, and sin has so infiltrated the law that nothing can grow there, nothing can flourish there. And so the only way for us to bear fruit is to somehow get away, not only from sin, but also to get away from the law. We'll talk about some of the misunderstandings or misapplications or misinterpretations of that uh, next week. But for now, in a sense, we have to get outside of the law. We're no longer under the law because of the lingering residue of sin. This doesn't mean, though, that the law is bad. We've talked about that a lot as we've been exploring sort of uh, in chapter 2, the, the Jewish boast in circumcision and uh, in the Mosaic law. The law itself isn't bad. I think Zach will really dive into that next week as, uh, as we kind of consider uh, that particular question. But let me remind you in the meantime of an image that we use that helps us see that the law isn't bad And yet at the same time, it can be used for this sort of bad purpose because of the effect of sin. We've used the illustration of uh, of the law as being a car. And even think of it as a really nice car. Uh, It is a, uh, a Ferrari or a Lamborghini or whatever it might be. It's this really nice car uh, even. And a car can be a blessing, right? Whenever uh, you need to uh, drive to work, whenever you need to drive uh, your wife to the hospital because she's going in labor, whenever you need to get your kids to school, whatever it might be. I wish that we had sort of mass public transportation like in New York City or Tokyo, but this is Texas and you need a car. Everything is uh, spread out. And so a car can be this huge blessing. But the analogy, the illustration that we used is imagine though you have this car, but you are completely plastered. Like not a little buzz, not feeling good, but you are utterly inebriated. You are completely intoxicated. You are just completely smashed and drunk. Now, all of a sudden, what was a blessing becomes a curse. Nothing's wrong with the car. Something's wrong with you. That's like the Mosaic law in the hands of sinners. That's like us trying to use the law. What is a blessing has been rendered a curse by sin. Or another analogy for this that you might uh, find helpful is think of the the law as kind of like a magnifying glass, and it refracts the beams of sin leading to death. Is a magnifying glass inherently bad? Absolutely not, but it bends, it concentrates the light and the heat of sin to burn away any potential fruit. So the law isn't bad, but sin has so stained the law. It's so interwoven with the law that it cannot curb your transgression. It, uh, it merely increases or accelerates or exacerbates sin. That's what he is, uh, is saying here. But does this then imply that, uh, that we're free? 
that we're free from any sort of obligation or anything like that? Does freedom from the law lead to lawlessness? That's what some of Paul's Jewish uh, compatriots would have said. They would have looked back upon the history of Israel. They would have known that Israel was exiled, and the reason that Israel was exiled was because they failed to keep God's law. And here Paul comes on the scene in the first century, and he is advocating for people to no longer be under the law for them uh, in sort of a first century Jewish mindset with all of this history of Israel being exiled. That is not only blasphemy, that is treasonous, which is why you see some of the animosity that Paul is going to experience not only at the hands of the Roman Empire, but in particular at the hands of his Jewish brethren. But what Paul says is, uh, is that freedom from the law actually doesn't lead to lawlessness. Ironically, it's being enslaved to the law that actually leads to lawlessness, whereas freedom from the law is going to lead to fruitfulness. This word fruit is used elsewhere in, uh, in Pauline literature to refer to all kinds of things. Good deeds of service to others, he calls fruit at times. Giving generously, so being generous in terms of what you give financially uh, is uh, considered a fruit. Godly character such as the, uh, the famous passage in Galatians 5 about the fruit of the Spirit. Even worship, sort of a life of worship, is, uh, is uh, called fruit in certain passages. And I think that's a good sort of holistic way of thinking about what he's talking about here. He's not talking about one or the other. He's talking about sort of a lifestyle that is marked by uh, worship, that all of our lives should be evidence of worship. So the fruit that he's talking about could consist of serving your spouse and loving your neighbor and disciplining your kids, making disciples and being generous and hospitable and resisting temptation, keeping your word, taming your tongue. Anything and everything that grows from the roots of the gospel is the type of fruit that he's talking about here in this passage. As the Old Testament saints are commanded to, uh, to, to, to marry and then to be fruitful and multiply, that's the imagery that we're seeing here, that you and I have been married that we have been united, that we've been bound together with Christ so that we might be fruitful and multiply, that we might go and we might uh, to bear fruit. And we bear fruit for uh, God's uh, glory. Notice it's saying here that you're bearing fruit for God. Go and bear fruit for God. We get a little taste here of the God-centeredness of Paul's gospel. In other words, God doesn't merely save you for your sake. He saves you also for His own sake. He saved you into something. He saves you into the story of His kingdom and His glory. The fruit that you bear, you bear for God. That's what often distinguishes good fruit from bad fruit, is its intended object, what it's offered up to. As Isaiah 61 uh, will declare, the gospel of the kingdom will create oaks of righteousness, a planting for the Lord that He might be glorified. And, uh, and so as just with... Uh, uh, Think of physical fruit and think about the way that you are to, uh, to, to, to grow physical fruit. If you have a lemon tree or an orange tree or tomato plant or whatever it might be, you know that one of the things that you have to do is you have to feed that particular vine or tree or bush or shrub or whatever it might be. And, uh, and so likewise with spiritual fruit, why would it be any different when it comes to spiritual fruit in our own lives? If you want to get physical fruit, you have to water it likewise in, uh, in regards to these uh, sort of spiritual fruits that he's talking about, these fruits of sanctification. And so we shouldn't expect to be bearing fruit for God 
if we are ignoring, if we are denying ourselves the sort of sprinklers of grace that He's provided for us. Reading Scripture, praying, regularly uh, participating in the life of the church. Not just attending church, but regularly participating in the life of the church. Serving others, and on and on we could go with all of these different sort of, uh, again, this idea of these are different irrigation ditches or sprinklers of, uh, of God's grace by which He sort of manifests uh, himself more fully for us. There are waterfalls that we can position ourselves under. They don't guarantee that fruit is going to happen, but fruit is certainly not going to happen uh, without them. So we see here this connection between redemption, which is what we've been talking about, being released from one master and joined to another in worship or service. And you see this theological principle that you're going to see throughout Scripture that redemption always leads to service. Redemption always leads to service. For example, think back for a second to, uh, to Exodus. If you remember the story, Charlton Heston stands in front of uh, Yul Brynner, and what does he say? Let my people go. Does anybody remember what's said after that? Not in the uh, Cecil DeMille uh, cinematic version, but actually in the biblical version. There's actually a line after that that uh, isn't recorded in the movie, but it's actually really important in the Old Testament. He says, let my people go that they may serve me. Israel wasn't freed. Israel wasn't released. Israel wasn't ransomed in order for them to just sit on the couch eating Cheetos watching Family Feud reruns or something like that, they were, sur- they were saved into a life of service. They're released from one master in order to be joined to another master. The problem is not bondage. You and I are always going to be in bondage. The problem is what we are bound to, or uh, better yet, to whom are we bound. That's the idea here. We've been freed from sin, from bondage to a spiritual Pharaoh, but God doesn't merely tell sin to let His people go. He says, let my people go that they may serve me in order that we may bear fruit for God. We talked last week about this inextricable relationship between justification and sanctification. We use this biologically impossible illustration of uh, non-identical conjoined twins, and we said that's kind of like justification and sanctification. They're not identical, justification and sanctification. There's a lot of differences between the two. But neither can they ever be uh, divided. That where you get one, you necessarily are going to get the others. If you have been justified, you will be sanctified. The seed of justification will always uh, produce the fruit of sanctification, which means if you look at your life and you don't see any evidences whatsoever of sanctification... You look at your life and you don't see evidences of where you're bearing fruit for God, something has gone horribly wrong. This passage is kind of like a letter from your HOA calling attention to the dead shrubs and bushes and telling you, do something about it. And we would love for you to do something about it. Come and talk to one of our staff members or elders or talk to uh, uh, your community group leader or whatever it might be. Don't simply be content uh, with or oblivious to your fruitlessness. Let's keep going. Final two verses, for while we were living in, this, in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. There's a really well-known story about uh, the early church father, Augustine, 
uh, and he tells in, uh, in his book, which is kind of a, uh, an autobiography, kind of not, but uh, his book called Confessions, he tells this story about a time that he goes and he steals some fruit as a teenager. And he doesn't even eat the fruit. He doesn't do it for the fruit itself, but rather for the thrill of disobedience. This is what he writes there in, uh, in Confessions. He says, yet I wanted to steal, and steal I did. I already had plenty of what I stole and of much better quality too. And I had no desire to enjoy it when I resolved to steal it. I simply wanted to enjoy the theft for its own sake and the sin. We derived pleasure from the deed simply because it was forbidden. That's what the law does. It arouses our passions for forbidden fruit. There it is again that the law doesn't restrict or restrain sin. It It arouses it. It entices it. It doesn't slow it down. It speeds it up. Again, there's nothing wrong with the law. Instead, there's something wrong with us. When we were in the flesh, we were full of sinful passions and pleasures and desires. Lust, greed, vanity, pride, sloth, apathy, fear, and on and on we could go. Imagine coming upon this raging fire and you intend to reach for a bottle of water, and instead you grab a jar of gasoline and you throw it on the fire. Well, what happens to that fire is what happens to the sinful, depraved human heart when you throw the law on it. That's the imagery that uh, he is using here. The law is to the unregenerate heart what gasoline is to a fire. Or another illustration, imagine that you're uh, leaving here, you're driving down, uh, down Virginia, and you begin to approach the I- intersection, and as you approach the intersection, the light turns yellow. What does the law say? Slow down. What does your heart say? Floor it, right? The law is going to arouse sin in us. That's the idea here. The law is going to arouse or entice sin, but now that we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, we now have this purpose of service. We saw that in the previous section, that we might bear fruit for God. Same idea, bearing fruit for God and that we might serve here in this passage is the same idea. So think back again to the book of Exodus. Israel set free. Pharaoh eventually, begrudgingly, and at least temporarily, releases Israel from slavery God has said, let my people go that they may serve me. But after Israel goes out, they don't serve Yahweh. They try to cast off and ignore their chains. They rebel against the Lord by saying that they wish that they were back in Egypt. They complain that they don't have cucumbers and leeks and melons and meat pots. They begin to regret and mourn their redemption. Now, think about that illustration. Think about Israel in the wilderness rebelling against the one who had redeemed them Think about that with, uh, through the lens of this image of marriage that Romans 7 is dealing with. Israel in the wilderness is like a widow or a widower who gets remarried and then constantly complains and compares their new spouse to their previous. He was smarter. She was prettier. He was richer. She was a better cook. If that sounds exhausting, if that sounds insane, then you begin to understand some of the insanity of habitual sin in the life of the redeemed. So is that us? Is that us? Are we merely kind of Israel 2.0 in this sort of desert, begrudging, mumbling, grumbling, murmuring, groaning in the wilderness? 
mourning that we're no longer married to sin and death and the law, mourning the fact that we're now married to Christ. No, it shouldn't be according to this passage. Israel's experience in Egypt is somewhat analogous to our own, but there is a key difference. And one of those main differences is unlike in the book of Exodus, God gives us something better than a written law. That's what he's dealing with here, not in the old way of the written code. The new covenant says that God writes the law on our very hearts. That's what it means that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. That's the promise of the new covenant. Some of you know this, some of you don't, but my wife is an incredible writer. It's actually how I met her, but that's another story for another time. And since she and I both love uh, to write, we decided to write our own uh, wedding vows. In general, I don't recommend that. Um, most of the self-written vows that I've ever read really cheapen or dilute the covenant of marriage. People think, say things like, I promise to always give you the remote, or I promise to never hog the covers, or whatever it might be. We wanted to do the exact opposite. We actually felt like the, uh, the traditional marriage vows weren't strong enough, so we wanted to uh, write our own. But you know what? I've never once thought even though we spent hours kind of laboring over our vows, I've never once thought, you know what, I'm not going to cheat on Casey because I wrote that I wouldn't, and I said that I wouldn't. Those words, that written code, isn't what really tethers me to her. Rather, I love her. I love my daughter. I love this church. I love my job. I love Jesus. This is what it means, by the way, when Paul will elsewhere write in a number of places throughout the New Testament that love is the fulfilling of the law. That love is the stronger bond than law. Tell me not to sin, and I may indeed sin. In fact, I will sin every time if I love that sin more than I love the other option. But tell me to do something that I love, and obedience is much more sweet and pleasant. That's serving in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. By saying that we're released from the law, Paul is not, again, implying that we're therefore released from moral commands, but he is saying that the Mosaic law is not our master or not our mate. We no longer serve the Mosaic law, but we still serve. That's still the heart of our redemption is that we might serve uh, the Lord God. Paul has already dealt extensively with the idea that we don't sin all the more so that grace may abound, but that's also what he's going to mean in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 20 through 21, to the Jews that became a Jew, in order to win Jews to those under the law, I became as one under the law. Notice this parenthetical remark, though not myself being under uh, the law, that I might win those under the law. So he's not under the law, that is the Jewish law, the Mosaic law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Notice this parenthetical remark, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So he's no longer under the Mosaic law, but he's still under the law of Christ. He's still under the law of God. He's still under the law of love. So we're released from the Mosaic law, but not released from service to God or morality or virtue or ethics or any of those sorts of things. In fact, we should be all the more passionate about obedience and sanctification because now our hearts, the law has been written on our hearts. A new law has been written on new hearts, and we're no longer under the rule and reign of sin. But our service is different from these new hearts. Very few of us are in danger of walking out of here and saying, you know what? I heard what Jeff said, but I'm going to go and I'm going to pursue the Mosaic law. 
But every one of us in this room is in danger of walking away from here and pursuing sanctification by some sort of law rather than by grace, rather than by this sort of imagery of our marriage uh, to Christ. The last thing I want to note is that it's absolutely fascinating for me that uh, Paul has changed metaphors from chapter 6 to chapter 7. Oftentimes, whenever uh, I'll change a metaphor, I'll simply give another metaphor just in case the first one didn't help. I'll give another one. That's not what Paul's doing here. He's not simply giving us five or six or seven in hopes that one will actually take. He's actually very intentional about the order in which he has given us metaphors. Chapter 6 is all about the metaphor of slavery, that we're slaves to sin, we're slaves to uh, death, we're slaves to the law. And now we have been enslaved to God, we've been enslaved to life, we've been enslaved to grace. That's the imagery that he uses there. And that's absolutely true, and that is helpful for us to know that we have been set free from one master and joined to another master. But in chapter 7, he changes the illustration, he changes the metaphor, he changes the analogy from slavery to marriage. And here's why I think that's fascinating. Because there is a way that I will serve a master that is different from the way that I serve my wife. Everyone in this room could probably think of certain contexts where you kind of do the bare minimum. Hopefully you don't do that at your job, but maybe you've had a job in the past, you were a kid or whatever it was, or maybe I think a really good illustration of this would be taxes. Some of you don't pay taxes at all. We'll deal with that in Romans 13, Uh, but uh, probably most of us pay our taxes, but if you're like me, your goal is to pay every single cent that you actually owe and not a cent more. You want to do the bare minimum. Now, does that work in your marriage? Hopefully not. I see a lot of blank faces. Hopefully you know the answer to that is not. You don't do the bare minimum when it comes to your marriage. You're serving from a different disposition, a different heart. You have a different motivation. That's the difference between serving out of law and serving out of grace. So this change of imagery from slavery to marriage is highly significant because it reveals this sort of disposition that's changed and this goal that's changed, that we aren't merely satisfied by burying our talent and digging it up later, that we want to bear fruit, we want to multiply. But this means that if you want to bear fruit, that your motivation can no longer be law. It must be grace. You have to see Christ as lovely and good and worthy of your attention and your affection. And within the the soil of this sort of grace-cultivated heart, the seed of the gospel will begin to bear fruit for your joy and for the glory of God. That's what this passage is saying this morning. That we've died to the law, but we're under a far stronger bond than the the law. We're under the bond of love. And so we pursue our passion because that passion is directed toward the good of our beloved master and husband, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. As the men come forward to uh, prepare for communion, Father, we are grateful for Your Word this morning. We're grateful that You are a God who has revealed Yourself. We're grateful that You are a God who does release us from one type of slavery only that we might experience another type of slavery, another type of slavery that is marked by uh, goodness and joy and fruitfulness. And So I pray that You would help us to see that. I'm grateful for this imagery that You have given us of marriage, Lord, that the, the image hasn't merely uh, rested upon us as being slaves, but also as us being the bride of Your Son. And so uh, I pray that we might 
have this uh, heart that would seek after sanctification, that would seek after the mortification of sin, that would seek after uh, the vivification of the Spirit, that we might do so as those uh, who know that we have been loved, and so we might do so out of hearts of grace. Make us a people who are passionate for holiness, Lord. We ask these things because even as we sang earlier, you are good and you do good. So we pray in Christ's name. Amen.